You can open up to the book of Ezra. We'll start in Ezra chapter 4 and 5, and then we'll make our way pretty pretty quickly into the book of Haggai. So we'll bounce around a little bit. You may need to dig around in your table of contents to find all of those, and that is just... That is just fine. As we sing those songs this morning, and um, I don't think I'm telling you anything that you don't know uh, already, but it just strikes me how poignant the metaphor is uh, that we are looking at. Now, obviously, what we are reading in, in Ezra and Nehemiah really happened. There was a, uh, a city left in ruins, a group of exiles coming back to begin the process of rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city. Uh, that is historical fact. That is real, but It is also a beautiful metaphor for what it means for us as we follow Christ. That he is, as we sing, making beauty out of ashes. That he is uh, building us and that he is is working in us from very much what is a a place that is ruins. Uh, It says that we were dead in our trespasses. Very much as though the, the city of Jerusalem, the temple was dead, was destroyed, was in ruins... Uh, that is very much our story as well. We too are in ruins. And the Christian life is very much the process of watching God build something out of those ruins. Something that he invites us to be along the, in, in the process of that, but that he builds something out of those ruins. And so as we read through this this morning, I want you to kind of keep that imagery in mind that uh, that God is working and he is building something in you. And the question is going to be, uh, as, as we see what happens to these Jews and how slow the process is in rebuilding the temple, how much does that mirror and look like your own life? I wonder, are you a patient person? If somebody were to, to, to ask you that question, how would you respond to that? Are you a patient person? I'm going to guess that almost no one in here said, yeah, I'm pretty patient. I'm going to guess most of you said, well, it kind of depends. Depends on what we're talking about here. Some things I'm patient, some things I'm not. Uh, for some, it's chronic. For some, it's only occasionally that it rears its head. Like for some, you can be extremely patient when it comes to, uh, like we talked about Matt, he's going to smoke some meat for us. He'll be patient in making sure that that meat is done just right because he needs to. Uh, but then the question would be, uh, are you going to show that kind of patience in other things? So would you be patient in, you know, a traffic light and somebody that's not going at the traffic light? Would you be patient uh, in other areas of your life? Are you a patient person? The question that really is going that we're going to get at this morning, so you can you can take a deep breath if you're like, oh no, I'm not a patient person. This is going to be a long morning for me. The question that we're really going to get at this morning is. What happens when something takes longer than God thinks it should? Not so much what happens when something takes longer than you think it should, but what happens when something takes longer than God thinks it should? That will be the focus of our message today. And I've been told very explicitly by Shay that I'm not allowed to go short today so that they have plenty of time to do stuff back there. So I'm going to try your patience, and we're going to see how this works for you all uh, this morning. But let's get back up to speed from where we were last week. 
uh, Zerubbabel has brought back the first batch of Jews from the exile, uh, and they had set out, and they've they've gone back to uh, begin by rebuilding the temple. Things got off to a good start. They had rebuilt the altar, the altar. They had had kind of their first worship service there. Uh, the foundations had been laid for the temple. They had generally put their priority where it belonged on the temple getting built. And then what we saw last week is they started to get a little bit of pushback. The first three chapters, things go exactly as planned, exactly as the script writer would have it. Chapter 4, we saw that they got a little bit of pushback, and they got discouraged. And they were so discouraged that they just quit what they were doing. Ezra would would go on to tell us throughout chapter 4 that this would become the norm for the people of Israel, for these Jews, as they seek to rebuild the temple in the city, this would become the norm, this pushback, this opposition, this group of people saying, uh, saying that you, you guys shouldn't be doing this and you can't do this. And the question becomes then, how do God's people respond to that? God's people attempting to complete God's task would continue to face adversity time and time again. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick up the narrative at the end of chapter 4, and we're going to remind ourselves what it said there, and then we're going to keep on going. So Ezra chapter 4, verse 24. They had received all this opposition, and then this this is what happened. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. It doesn't say it slowed. It doesn't say they had a hard time doesn't say they were worried. It just stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And I know that means nothing to you. But what you need to know is it stopped for about 16 to 17 years. Years. They stopped working on the temple. They were, go- they, they were doing great. They had laid the foundations. They had started putting down the bricks. They had started doing some amazing things. And then it all came to a screeching halt. And this is a disappointing part of the story. This is not how it should go. How it should go is that the people come back, and whenever the people come back, they, they should start their project, and, and they should, as quickly as possible, get to building everything, celebrating God's goodness. They've got, you know, drums and trumpets, and they got a parade back, but that's not what this looked like. It wasn't drums and trumpets in a parade. It was actually a very small group of people that came back. And when that, that small group of people very quickly realized they were outnumbered by the people that were around them, they said, you know what, this is a little tough. I've got a lot of stuff going on. I think I'm going, I think I'm going to bow out on this one. They should have been as quickly as possible standing in the courtyard of the temple with the, uh, uh, with, with the, uh, the, the city council and with the, uh, the uh, chamber of commerce all there for a rib- ribbon cutting. That's what should have happened. They should have been right there for that as quickly as they could. After all, God clearly blessed this return. So whatever God blesses should go smoothly, right? If it's a God-blessed, God-ordained task, then all should be well and all should go smoothly. Because the way that we create these categories is if things are going well, that means God is blessing us and that means that things are exactly as they should be and we're doing what God would have us. When things get hard, when things get difficult, that means that God has removed his blessing and that God is no longer watching over us. That's the two categories that we have. 
When things are going well, God is with us. When things are not going well, God has forgotten us or is actively opposing us. And this will be my first point for us this morning. This is not how the Bible works. This is just not how the Bible works. It never reduces God's will and our progress to a simple formula like that that says, when things are going well, God is with you. And when things are not going well, God is not. If we are going to be a discerning, Bible-believing group of Christians, then we have got to get out of this Western mindset that has infected our faith. plan are not met by smooth seas and paved roads. Sometimes it is hard, laborious work. In fact, if you read through Scripture, that is usually the case. I would take it a step further and say that the Bible actually tells us the exact opposite is probably true. That the wealthier, the more successful, the more at ease you are with your life, according to Scripture, the more concerned you should be about your soul. The easier things are for you, the more dangerous it is for you. God's blessing does not equal ease, comfort, and security. We have to be more discerning than that. Now, this does not mean that whenever things are hard, then that means that God is actively pressing against you. There's a lot of reason things can be hard, and there's a lot of reasons things can be going well. Sometimes things going well is a blessing that we should be thankful for. Just not always. It's just not that simple. It takes more work. It takes more discernment. It takes more input from others. It takes more study of Scripture. It takes more analysis of your situation to figure out what is going on. Is this good or is this bad? Where is God in all of this? Here the people were doing, were fully doing exactly what God had commanded. They were on the right track until they met their opposition. And then as soon as they met their opposition, they laid down their bricks And they went home. And it's when they went home that they got a bit distracted. You guys ever get distracted by things? Like some of you all are sitting here right now and you're looking at something on this wall behind me and you haven't heard anything I've said for the last five minutes. Because I know you're totally distracted. Like there's something like that for almost all of us. It it is, and I'm not talking about ADD, like that's a whole different thing that has its whole whole set of problems, but our world today is built for chronic distraction, and we all get distracted because there is just too much out there screaming for our attention. These Jews coming back from exile, they had plenty of distractions for them too. Our distractions are built around things like football games and social media and you know Twitter memes and Facebook fights and that kind of stuff. YouTube rabbit holes that take us you know, two hours into watching stuff on YouTube. That's our distractions. Their distractions were, I wonder if I'm going to die tonight because I don't really have a secure home or a wall around the city. I wonder if I'm gonna if I'm gonna get robbed tonight because there is no security here. I, I wonder if 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 my family that I left back in 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 uh, in Persia. I wonder if 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 they're okay because I left them so I could come do this task. And now here we are. We're not even building the temple. Their distractions were on a different level than ours are, at least for most of us. On top of all that, they've got a house that needs to be rebuilt. For themselves. 
Forget the, the temple and all that goes with that. they got to figure out how to build their own house, how to get a roof over their own head. Remember, we talked about this last week. They, they celebrate the Feast of ta- or two weeks ago, they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and there's no need for them to build a makeshift tent just for the fun of it. There's no need for that. They don't need that at all because they're living it. They, they, were, they were barely in their homes at all whenever they had to come back to the temple for a worship service, and they had to come back to the altar and celebrate the foundations that had been laid. They had plenty of distractions. And the story of these people is that those distractions completely take over their lives. For 17 years, they're completely distracted from the task that brought them back to Jerusalem in the first place. I feel that though. It's easy for us to sit in in judgment of them and say, man, what are you all doing? This is not the way this was supposed to go. This is not the script. This shouldn't be like this for you guys. But man, I feel that because life is hard for for us now. It was even harder for them then. Life just in general is not built to be easy. Sometimes for a lot of us in here, just making it out of the bed in the morning and back into the bed at night is a massive accomplishment. Forget whatever happens in between that you got to get done too. Life is just hard. And so whenever these, these, this group of people comes together and they're distracted by a life around them that is that is exceptionally hard, harder than any of us can even fathom, to be honest with you, harder than any of us can pull together. Whenever these people come together and now God says, make this your priority, it's hard because they're distracted. And for 17 years, they're distracted from that thing that should be their priority. But again, man, I just, I feel that that, like, I, I, I can associate with that. I don't look at them in judgment and say, how in the world could you guys neglect the priority that God gave you? I look at them and say, man, I get it. I totally get it. You, you wake up in the morning, you, you start a new year with your New Year's resolution saying, this will be my priority for this year. And I wonder how many of you, like me, have had the same New Year's resolutions for like 17 years. I think they did. Like, okay, maybe this year will be the year. And then they never get around to it. Here's the thing that makes this especially precarious for the Jews, though. They've already been exiled from this place once already. They've already been kicked out once because of their lack of faithfulness. They've already gone into exile and seen their country dissolve, their families killed and enslaved and lost their homeland, all because they could not get their act straight. All because they could not make their priorities the priorities that they actually follow through on. And now God has said, I will give you a second chance. I gave you warnings, I have enacted my punishment for 70 years, and now you guys get another chance. So this is a really, really bad time for them to get distracted. Because they're kind of on probation here already. 
And yet here they sit, 17 years in an abandoned construction site, nothing happening. So it's taking way longer than it should. How do you respond? Think about in your own mind how you would respond were you in God's place. He has to be thinking, here we go again. I warned these guys, and I warned these guys, and I warned these guys. Have they not read anything of the history of their own nation? Do they not understand how they got into this place in the first place? Here we go again. Second chance after second chance, and now we're back in the same place that we were when I kicked them out 70 years ago, 87 years ago. We're right back in the same place. I can tell you this much. If you want to ask me about how much patience I have, don't ask me in this situation because it's not going to be much. You can ask my kids, if I give them a second chance, and then on that second chance, they continue to neglect what I had warned them about from the first chance, my patience will not just be thin, my patience patience will be invisible. I will lose my mind because I have given them a second chance, I have warned them, and they still cannot follow through on that thing that I have warned them, hey, you better follow through on this thing. And so this is the situation that they find themselves. Second chance given, second chance neglected. And now God looks at them and says, what will I do? So the question is, what does God do? So let's read verse 1 of chapter 5. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who is over them. That's a short verse, but it tells us a whole lot. What did God do? He sent them some messengers. He sent them some prophets. He sent them some people to show up and say, hey guys, what are you doing? He sent them these two, the two books of the Bible that you read here, their, their oracles that they bring, their sermons that they bring, the message that they bring is God coming to them and saying, Hey, guys, it's been 17 years. What are you doing? He sent them messengers to tell them something. He did not turn his back on them. He did not walk away from them. He did not send them yet another army to destroy them and take them away. He did not retreat from them. He sent them prophets. So then the natural question is, well, what did the prophets say? So this is where we turn to Haggai, and we find out exactly what they had to say. And I'll just tell you right now, we're turning to Haggai to see what Haggai had to say, uh, because Zechariah might be the most confusing book in the entire Bible. Right there with Ezekiel. It's a confusing book. It's a prophetic book, but it is an apocalyptic book. It is describing all kinds of end-time stuff. And we don't have time this morning for me to try to sort through all of that stuff. We could talk about that uh, on, a, on, a, on maybe a different day or maybe it would be a whole different sermon. We just don't have time to cover all of it. But you can go and read the book of Zechariah. And you can sort through some of that and figure out what is it that he is saying. Because he's one of the messengers that they give. Haggai, Zechariah come at this in two completely different ways. Haggai is going to be straight to the point 
clear as a bell, here's what you need to do. That works for me. That's a whole lot easier for me to sort through. But Zechariah, there's a lot there too. So Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. That's a long introduction. But here's what he said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Stop there for just a second. So these two verses set the scene. It's the second year of a new king. People are looking around at one another saying, nope, I know this is like year 17, but this is not the year to make this our New Year's resolution. This is not the year to make this the thing. Now is not a good time. Nobody wants to ruffle the feathers of a new king. The old king, Cyrus, that had given us the decree, he's gone. So we can't count on him to have our backs. This would be bad time for us to start a fight with a new king. Now is not the time. Let's just keep a low profile. Let's just keep on keeping on. This king doesn't even know us. Let's just, let's just be chill here. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So this is what God says to that resolution of now's not the time. He says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does not put them in a bag with holes. Does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. There's a lot for us to take away here. Let me explain what he said here, and then try to be direct in our application as best I can. God is not happy with the people of Jerusalem with the Jews that have come back. Not only have the people stopped their work on the temple, they really have no plans to start again. They're just kind of keeping on, keeping on, doing their thing, getting through with life, and they are running their own HGTV, tent, HGTV show uh, on uh, rebuilding and, and fixer upper Jerusalem. Like they are fixing all of their own houses. They're doing their own thing. They're all in there fixing their stuff up, doing some amazing stuff. They've gotten completely distracted from the task at hand. And not only have they gotten completely distracted from the task at hand, it's kind of worked out for them so far. They've not been attacked. God has not said anything to them in 17 years. They've got pretty nice houses now. Things are going well for them. So why would they ruffle anybody's feathers? Let's just keep on keeping on. Let's just do our thing. They put up some nice neighborhoods. They built some spec houses. The people were feeling pretty good about themselves. This is what it talks about when it says they live in their paneled homes. That was a luxury for them. 
But God says something important to them through the prophet. And let's see if you can catch it. It's in verse 5 and it's in verse 7. He tells them, consider your ways. He's going to do something that I'm going to ask you guys to do yourselves this morning as well. He wants them to stop for a second and ask them this question. How are things going? I don't know if any of y'all are Dr. Phil fans. I used to like Dr. Phil. I haven't watched him in a long time, but I used to like him. And he used to always ask this question to these people who thought they had everything figured out. He would always say to them, how's that working out for you? And they were on the Dr. Phil show, so that meant they were probably a train wreck. And so he, he would ask them this question. He would say, how's that working out for you? Just the, the obvious nature of that question. Well, it's not working out well, so maybe we need to try something different. That's basically what happens. He says, how's that working out for you? The thing is, if you just stop and you look at it, it's working out pretty well for them. They're kind of okay with the life they're living. At least on the surface. As long as they don't stop and consider their ways. As long as they don't stop and analyze where they're at. As long as they don't stop and consider the truth of what's really happening. As long as they don't look at their hearts. As long as they look at their bank accounts and they look at their homes, things are going pretty well. Things are working out well. And God says, I know that your houses are nice that you've built, but look at your life. How is that going for you? How are you doing? You guys have sown a lot, but you've harvested very little. You eat, but you're never full. You drink, but it's not enough. You have all kinds of clothes, but you're still freezing cold. You make your money, but it's gone, and you don't even know it. How is life going for you guys? Basically, you think you've got it made, but you're never satisfied. It's never enough. He says, have you ever stopped to consider why that is? Have you ever stopped to consider why you feel like you need to, you, you, you need to eat more, you need to drink more, you need to get more, you don't ever have enough? Have you ever stopped to consider why enough is not enough? That's the rhetorical question that God asks and kind of leaves hanging there. Why is it that you fill your buckets from morning until dusk and you eat until the pantry is empty and you drink until the jug is empty and you can't seem to get enough? Why is it that you're constantly looking for more? I would ask you the same question. I would would put it the same way to you in your own life. Consider your ways. What is it that you are pursuing that you just can't seem to get into a place where you say, I'm good. I'm happy here. I'm good here. What is it that makes you say, I need something else. I need something more. I need to go shopping. I need to get some food. I need to get a new relationship. I need to get a new job. I need to make some more money. I need this. I need this. I need this. Do you know how much money people need? It's $1 more. Just $1 more. I don't care how much money you make. It's just $1 more. That's how much money they need. What else do you need? What else is it that you're chasing in your life? Is it comfort? Is it security? Is it the the feeling that you're just overall happy with yourself? Is it a body that you want? Is it 
what is it that is the thing that makes you say, if I could just have this a little bit more, a little bit more, I'll be all right. But it's the same story. What are you going to want? You're going to want one pound, one pound less, and you're going to want one inch less. You're going to want, you're going to want to be able to bench 10 pounds more. You're going to be, you're going to want just a little bit more. When will you get to a place where you say, I'm good, I'm happy, I'm satisfied? The answer is you won't get there. I've played the video before of Tom Brady when he was, like I don't know, three or four championships in. And he said, what, are, what, what do I need? I don't know, I just need one more, I just need one more championship because this isn't satisfying me yet. And he's still going. That's the guy that achieved the highest level. What do you want? What do you need? You just need one more. Hear the testimony of the Jews here. Even when you have enough, it will not be enough. At least it won't be enough if God is gracious. You see, one of the ways that God is constantly showing us grace and pulling us to himself is that he will constantly remind us that we need more. You see, there's ways that God could have judged and punished these Jews that were living in Jerusalem right here. There's ways he could have punished. He could have sent another army to attack them. He could have sent robbers in the night to rob them. He could have wiped out their homes, destroyed what progress they had made on the temple. He could have killed them all and wiped them out. But you know what else he could have done? Nothing. He could have just walked away from them, let them live in their houses, let the temple stay where it is, in ruins, and just let them be satisfied with a nice house, with a nice car, with a nice family, in a nice yard, with a nice dog. He could have just... Let them be. And that too would have been the judgment of God. But he shows us his grace when we have all of those things and we're still restless. He makes, he makes us to be uncomfortable. He makes us to be unsatisfied. He makes us to want something more. He does not do this so we will be unhappy, but he does this so that we will know true happiness. He does this not because he is cruel, but because he is gracious. All I want is for my kids and for my family to be happy. But I make a mistake if I think giving them stuff and putting them in this perfect little bubble, in this perfect little pillow to to protect them and keep them with all the needs and everything supplied, if I think that will satisfy them. I cannot give them enough. God would be cruel to them if everything that I could provide would be enough. The classic quote from C.S. Lewis fits here. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Think about it this way. 
If our highest good is that we know God and that we find our redemption in Him, then the most gracious thing God can do is make sure that we don't find our solution and our hope in anything else but that. That He would keep us restless. In fact, I would say a person at peace that does not know God is a person in a very, very dangerous place. Romans 1, 21 says it this way. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, what did God do? He gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What did God do to cast judgment whenever he talks about this in Romans 1? He gave them what they wanted. He just gave them what they wanted. What was already there What would have been the gracious thing? What is the gracious thing for God to do there? It's that whenever they get what they want, they realize they never really wanted that in the first place. They were chasing after something else. Our hearts should break for them. Yet most of the time we see their Instagram, we see their house, we see all the other things that life has given them and we want to be them. Friends, do not envy the celebrity who does not know God. They are either empty and faking it, or they are completely happy and in grave danger. Neither is what God has for us. Some of you in here may be feeling that tug, maybe for the first time, coming to that realization for the first time that maybe you, are, you do need to consider your ways. You do need to consider your own heart. You do need to consider where you find satisfaction. You do need to consider those things. If that's you, I urge you, do not go chasing after things that cannot, that will not satisfy. All of those things are intended to leave you wanting more. So that you will turn to the only one who can satisfy. But let's be honest. If you've been at Providence, this is not the first time that you have heard this. This is not the first time that I've talked about this. We talk about this a lot. So I'm guessing that a lot of you are kind of nodding along. You're, 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 you're like, yeah, I get it. I'm totally right there with you. You're preaching to the choir here. But let me ask you too to consider your ways. The people of God here, the Jews, had gotten distracted by the day-to-day reality of building a life. They wanted homes. They wanted food. They wanted money. They wanted to be secure. They, 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 they weren't looking to dishonor God. They weren't rebelling directly against God. They weren't trying to deny His existence. Far from it. They were observing all of the things that need to be observed. They were keeping their feasts. They were, they were offering their sacrifices. They were doing the things that religious people do. But they were completely distracted from the task at hand. They still loved God. 
they just got distracted. So my question for you is, how distracted are you this morning? What has your heart's affection and your mind's attention? It may be a terrible thing. It may be a sin that you you cannot seem to break, that you cannot confess, that you have not confessed. It may be a sin that you cannot shake, but it also may be something good. Pursuit of, of, of good things that have become the things that just distract you from the ultimate thing, from the priority that God has placed in your life. What has taken your mind and has convinced you that it will make everything better, especially if you get just a little bit more? What has distracted you? God is telling you this morning, it's time to get back to work. It's time to get back to what he has called you to do. The rebuilding from the ruins. For these Jews, it was the work of the temple. But what is it for you this morning? What is it that God is telling you it's time to get back to work? What is that thing that you realize, I've got to to get back to work here? Now don't misunderstand. I'm not calling you to save yourself. I'm not calling you to clean yourself up and make yourself pretty for God. In fact, there's a really great, exam- great picture of how this works if we keep on reading here in just a minute. I'm just wondering, what is the thing? And then my question is, will you respond like the Jews did? Let's see how they responded. This is Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. So Haggai comes, delivers this prophecy, says, what are y'all doing Quit working on your own houses. Your houses are way too nice and the temple's in ruins. Let's do this. And then verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And this is what God said. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. It's such a beautiful picture of how sanctification works right there. Such a beautiful picture. God calls us out. We respond in obedience. God responds back. I am with you. And then his spirit stirs us up to do the work of repentance. You see how that works there? The give and take of that. God is the one that does the calling. God is the one that, that, uh, that says, I am with you. God is the one who sends his spirit to indwell us. And then to aid us in the work of repentance. And then we do the work under the power of the Spirit. That's how sanctification works. That's how we grow in godliness. That's how we rebuild from the ruins of sin. God says, I am with you. Now let's get to work. And I'll send the Spirit to empower you in that work. It's a beautiful, 
picture. If you go back to Ezra chapter 5, go back to Ezra chapter 5, we get an even uh, better look at how God blesses them as they respond in obedience. This is going to be chapters 5 and 6. 5 and 6 recount a story where uh, the people started building it again, and whenever they started building again, they met opposition again. And these political schemers sent a letter to Darius and, and, and tried to get the work stopped. But King Darius checks the history books and indeed finds out that King Cyrus had, uh, given, a, uh, had given a decree before. So basically they, they write this letter say, Darius, you can't let this keep on going. You can't do this. The Jews come back and say, hang on, we got permission from Cyrus. We definitely can do this. You can't stop us. And then Darius comes and he says, well, let's check it out. Let's see if it's true. So they go back and they check the, the law books and the history archives. And Darius says, you know, that's true. Actually, actually, what it says here is that not only are you allowed to rebuild the temple, but we're supposed to help you supply the temple with gold and with silver. We're supposed to help you supply the temple with all of these different things. And so the opposition actually turns into an occasion for God to remind totally secular king that he is to bless the people of God. And then Darius insists the royal treasury help pay for the temple. So they go from being halted to being opposed to now being fully funded by this new king. It just goes to, under, to underscore the, the point that God does not need us for anything. It's all His. He could have used anybody to rebuild this temple. He just chose to bring His people in on the work. And then Ezra chapter 6 verse 14 reads this way. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So they finally finished the work. It took them four more years once they started rebuilding, but they finally finished the work. God's house is built. God's patience with his people has allowed them to fulfill their obedience to him. Can you imagine when they stopped building how God must have thought, here we are again. Here we are again, just like their grandparents. But instead of leaving them, he pursued them. And then they responded in obedience. And then he empowered them with his spirit. And then he walked with them through it all. such a beautiful picture of how God can work. It's time to celebrate now because as we end chapter 6 of the book of Ezra, the temple is here, outfitted with gold and silver, provided by the people of Persia and the king's storehouse. It's such a beautiful picture of God's grace and so it is with us today time and time again we are distracted we are undisciplined we are rebellious we are self-centered we are misguided we are lazy 
We are everything we are not supposed to be. And yet God shows us mercy. And he makes us miserable. And then he gives us hope in our misery. He makes us dissatisfied. And then he gives us the only hope to be satisfied. For the Jews, he sent the prophets. For us, he sent Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So what happened whenever the people got distracted in the book of Ezra? God sent his prophets. What happened whenever our life was in ruins, destroyed by sin? He sent his son. And then he did the same thing that he did there. He does now. We respond in obedience to the call to follow Jesus. We respond in repentance. And then that repentance is empowered by the Spirit. This is what it means to follow Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. That God shows grace. That we respond whenever he stirs us by his Spirit. And then we get to work. We get to work. Who does the work of repentance? The Spirit and us. 100% both ways. This is the story of what it means to be a Christian. The story of God's people at work building the temple. Building it from ruins. Distracted, messed up, doing the wrong thing. God shows grace and brings them out and completes the temple. So it is with us. Exactly what I've talked about several times over the last, last few weeks. The work that God has begun in you, He will bring it to completion. That is the promise that we have in His Spirit. So this morning, my question for you is, what has gotten you distracted? Will you respond in the same way that God's people have responded? With repentance and empowerment by the Spirit? Or will you keep looking for just one more thing? One more distraction. One more Facebook post. One more... Twitter scroll, one more whatever to distract you. One more, one, more, one more picture on Instagram. One more click on an internet webpage. One more dollar, one more raise, one more degree, one more whatever. Will you keep looking for one more? Or will you respond to the only one that can satisfy and can make you whole? Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we thank you for your grace that you did not give us everything that we think we want. Father, I pray for everyone in here that is fully distracted by the things of this world that you would lay on our hearts an unsatisfaction with the things of this world that is unshakable. Open our eyes to the emptiness. Draw us to our 
to our knees so that we would consider our ways. And then, Father, I, I pray that you will do exactly what you did for your people, that you will send your spirit, that the wind will blow, our hearts will respond, and the spirit will empower us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.